Well, good morning to you. I would invite you to take out your Bible and find Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have one, it's all right. It'll be behind me on the screens. We'd love for you to join us in that way. As we conclude, at least for now, this series in the book of Genesis called In the Beginning, as we start a new summer series next week, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of God this morning. Let's thank him for it. God, we are grateful, so thankful that we have your word. May we see beautiful things in it, and may we be more like you as a result, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you know what this is? I mean, you're smart, right? I mean, that's a dumb question. You know what this is. It's a traffic cone. A traffic cone alerts you to a construction that is coming up, lets you know that there's a hole that you don't want to fall into. But you see this, and you know exactly what it means because of what you see. But what if you have no reference to a traffic cone? What if you've never seen one before and all that is shown you is this side of it? You don't see anything else back here. What would you assume about this uh, when you hear the word traffic cone? That it's a square and that it has a circle inside of it, right? You would have no idea the rest that's coming out uh, the other side. Oftentimes, this is how God works in Scripture, And how God works in our own lives is that we can only see a small picture of what God is doing and we're completely unaware of what else he's accomplishing behind the scenes that we can't see with our eyes. In our text today, it's about one man who trusts God without seeing the whole picture and he trusts him that God did indeed, see, did indeed see the whole picture and that his promises that he made to him were going to come about. And so what we're picking up here in chapter 12, we're picking up on the edge of chapter 11 where um, humanity has been very disobedient to God. God tells them to scatter, be fruitful and multiply, but they stay all together and they start building a tower to reach God, the Tower of Babel. But God brings confusion, changing their languages, and then they spread out throughout the earth. Man was godless from the true God, and it would seem that it was, they were hopelessly lost. Except for a distant promise that was made to Shem, who, if you recall, was Noah's son. That in him, there would be some kind of blessing that would come through his line. And so chapter 11 ends with the genealogy, or the line of Shem, recounting all the descendants of him to his son, Terah. Terah being a guy's name in the Bible, although it's often a female name here. Terah was quite the man, and he lived in the land of Ur. And born to him was a man that you will recognize. Father Abraham was his son. 
He is perhaps the most famous of all biblical characters, saved Jesus and David. And chapter 11 records at this point, though, that he is actually no father at all, and that his wife Sarai is barren, unable to have children. So when God created the world back in Genesis chapter 1, the world was of utter chaos. It made no sense. It was confusion. And he speaks into the chaos, bringing order, because that's what God does. And so here in chapter 12, we find the same kind of terminology. Chapter 11, there's chaos, disorder, mankind is a mess, and then God speaks into that mess, bringing order, as it says, and the Lord God said. He ushers in this new era. He talks about how he was going to now, through one man, start what he was going to start this major change in all of scripture where he starts working, bringing mankind back to himself through one, starting with one person. And you never see this start again throughout all of scripture. And so he starts working with this man, Abram, who you'll know as Abraham, over 40 years time. Now there are great people in the Bible that we are meant to connect with and to learn from and to follow their example. And Abraham is one of those men. And when we look at his life, we see what it looks like to live by faith. And so I want to give to you this morning just three components of living by faith. And here's the first one. That you believe the God's bare promises. You believe his bare promises. So God shows up 75 years into Abram's life and tells him to pack up and move, to leave his family, to leave his father's house, all that he was familiar with, his entire identity that was wrapped up in. He says, it's time for you to go. Now, this would have been a big deal because nobody even traveled more than 20 miles from home in their entire lifetime. And he was from the land of Ur. Now, Ur is a real place, and it was uh, excavated in 1922 to 1934 by this man right here, Leonard Woolley. And he came about and spent 12 years exploring Ur in the country of Iraq presently. And what he found is that Ur was a thriving, sophisticated city. It was not a podunk town with one stoplight and a Casey's. Okay, they were well established. So if you have a case, you're pretty established, right? <laughs> so he, he, it wasn't like Abram was sitting there thinking, oh, I've got to get out of this little town. I've got to get out and experience real life. No, he was in a thriving city. And God calls him to leave this great place and to live as a nomad, a wanderer. And so the first promise that he gives to Abraham, the first of three, is that he's going to give him land. But the issue is that God doesn't tell him where that land is going to be. He was sending Abram on a destination unknown. I went on a destination unknown when I was in junior high with my church youth group. And I've come to find out now that I am a youth pastor, destination unknown means you have to provide a parent's calendar and you're not sure what you're doing yet. You're going to figure it out. All right? And so this is what we went on. And we ended up going to the zoo. And I remember as an eighth grade boy being like, this is what we're doing for destination unknown. This is so lame. Of course, I loved it, but would never admit that. But this is what he was calling him to. 
If we moved a cell group, uh, a family in our cell group from one side of Ankeny to the other and packed up their truck, and they knew exactly where they were going. They had done all kinds of research of the kind of home that they wanted and everything that, they, that should be inside of that home, and they found the perfect location for them. Here, Abraham is asked to get into his loading everything up to type in his GPS, take me home, and not know where that location is going to be. That's why he's, he's now the example of great faith in all of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in foreign land, living in tents with Isaac. Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So what Abraham was doing was that he was trusting that God's way, his plan, was ultimately better than anything that he could experience, even in the comforts of his home of Ur. Ur was designed by men, and now all we have left is ruins. It's gone. But Abraham was looking for something beyond that. He was looking towards a city whose building and foundation and the builder was God himself. So he's saying the purposes that God is calling me to is beyond the temporal, but it's, it's future. It's now and it's a time where I'm going to one day live in a city that was built by God himself. And that's why he went. He saw God as his greater treasure than anything else he could have. And this calling is a picture of our salvation in Christ. God initiates this call of grace. The sinner, Abraham, in this case, responds. And for us as Christians, when we come and we come to know Christ, we're called to trust his word alone and nothing else. He doesn't promise security or tell us the future, but he does promise that he will be with us and that he will bring us home. So he's promised to him, first of all, land. Second, he promised to him a seed or an offspring. He says, I will make you a great nation. The nation of Israel would come from Abraham. Isaac, his son, would then father Jacob, who would have numerous sons, and 12 of them would become the tribes of Israel. And then he says to him, I will make your name great. Do you see the contrast there between those at Babel that were setting out to make a name for themselves, to make their own names great, and it didn't work out so well for them. But God shows up to Abraham and he says, I am going to make your name great. See, God uses whoever he wants when he wants. We don't get to choose to make our own names great. God does that himself. He puts down one and raises up another. So let that be an encouragement to us to stop trying to build our own platform, to stop trying to think about Brad or whatever your name is, about how I can make myself well-known, which is the desire of our hearts, and to let God, if he chooses to, to make that happen for us. Thirdly, he promises Abraham a blessing. God was going to make him and his offspring to bless the entire world. He was going to be blessed so that he could be a blessing to everyone. And Abraham believed this. 
And so the question for us is, do we trust the bare promises of God? When he says he's going to be faithful to us, do we trust him when we only see part of the cone? Do we trust God with our health, our finances, our children, our jobs, whatever else there might be, a lack of a job, where we're going to go to college? Do we trust him knowing that he is working even though we can't see the whole picture? Well, let's see what Abraham does. Verses, verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they sent out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still going towards Nagab. So Abram, when he hears this, God tells him to move. He actually does it. He packs up everything and he goes. The second component of great faith is that you respond in obedience. That you respond in obedience. He makes the 800-mile trip from Ur to Canaan. And this is why he's held up as a great example of faith. Not just because he said he was going to trust God, but that he responded in obedience to what God said. In the book of James, James holds him up for this very thing. He says, Abraham is a great man of faith, and he proved that by being obedient to God. True faith always leads to action. True faith always leads to action. Now, at this point, I think there's this, this movement that says, whoa, obedience to God, that's legalism. It's all about grace, right? And it is all about grace. But our obedience to God is a response in faith to the grace that he has given to us, right? So legalism is saying, I'm going to be obedient so that God will accept me, or I'll get more merit from God. Where obedience to God is when we've already trusted in him for merit, we already have full acceptance from God, so therefore we now live lives that are transformed and we respond to him in obedience, that's why James tells us in, in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what does James say? If you have a mere intellectual assent about who God is, that just qualifies you to be a demon. That's all it does. True faith always responds and has obedience that wants to know and follow God with their lives. That's why one writer I really love says, salvation is a life-changing encounter with God. Nobody comes to true faith without living a life followed by obedience. Not perfect obedience, but a heart that wants to know God and follow him and being obedient to what he says. 
So God shows up and tells him, this land belongs to you, and it belongs to your offspring. So Abraham then builds up an altar, a place that he can worship and sacrifice to God, much like Noah did previous to him. But you know what's interesting? Is Abraham doesn't show up, and the land is vacant, or it's remnants of people who used to live there, like something that's a fixer-upper or something like that, and this is now yours to possess and live in. Instead, he shows up in the land of Canaan where Canaanites are still living who were really, really evil people. Now, God doesn't tell him that's where he's going to direct him. So he shows up and finds out where this is, and he sees uh, that this is going to be hard. It's not just a fresh start, but he's going to be living with people that are opposed to God and are opposed to him. And he might have the feeling of, oh man, what did I get myself into? I'm not so sure if I want to do this. But his feelings don't trump his worship. He still says, in the midst of this, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to continue to worship him even if this didn't work out exactly the way that I thought it would. And what a great example for us. When we look at life, and maybe it's drawn up a little bit differently than we thought it would be. We look at our marriage. We look at the job. We look at uh, the circumstances of our life. Kids look at their parents and go, this is not how I thought it was going to be, right? Uh, But you look at that and you think, still, in the midst of all of this, I'm going to choose to worship God. And you know, Abraham would live in a tent the rest of his life. And the only structures he ever built were altars. Isn't that beautiful? In the midst of whatever he was transitioning to or wherever he was, he was still worshiping God. But it's not that Abraham just had great faith. He had great faith in God. That's why he's held up as a great man of faith, because his, the object of his faith is what made his faith so great. It, that's what made it significant. So the other day I was at my neighbor's house in his uh, driveway, and he was rebuilding the engine of his truck. And I was so impressed. I'm not a car guy, and I don't know anything really about them. And I was just looking at this, just in awe of what he was doing and showing me all these things that I had no idea what he was talking about. And it just, I was just like, wow, that's amazing. I could never, ever do that. And I started walking back to my house. And I thought, what if, he, if someone came to me and asked me to rebuild the engine of their truck? And what if they had really great faith that I was going to be able to? Right? I would say, dude, it's never going to happen. You do not want me to do that. And he said, no, 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 no. I really believe with everything that I am that you're going to be able to do this. Let's say I do it, right? What happens? The person dies. That's what will happen if I rebuild your, the engine of your truck. Because if for some reason that thing does start, you're going to be blown 30 feet in the air because I have no idea what I'm doing. Right? Because even though you have great faith in me, the object of your faith is going to let you down. And so that's what makes Abraham's faith so amazing. 
is that he doesn't have great faith in his 401k or the plans that he has. He doesn't have his, his great faith in uh, all the stuff that he's going to do or how good his, he is at tent building, all these things. Instead, it's because he had great faith in God. And this is going to be significant for him because there were going to be times that he was going to lack faith. So there's a famine in the land. And instead of trusting God, Abraham goes down to Egypt where there's all kinds of food. Now, there's something you got to know about Sarai, who would later become Sarah. She was 65 years old, and she was a really good-looking 65-year-old. <laughs> like, really good-looking. How do I know that? Because everywhere she went, people wanted to take her as their wife. And they, so Abraham knows this. He's like, I don't know how I got you. I won the lottery, honey. It's crazy. But you are smoking, all right? And we're going to go down to Egypt, and everybody's going to want to marry you. So here's what we need to do. We're going to tell them that you're my sister. So that way, nobody kills me to take you as their wife. How's that sound? And they agreed to it. Now, he's kind of like thinking, this is a pretty good idea. It's kind of a half-truth. Technically, she's my half-sister. So this is going to work out okay. But he doesn't trust God, does he? Wiersbe says that not living by faith is, is living by scheming. When you live by faith, you don't have to scheme about how am I going to work things out, but instead you trust God. And so what's the result? Let's see what happens when they go down there. Pharaoh actually takes her, by the way, which is a little, it tells you how beautiful she was. The Pharaoh of Egypt wants her as his wife. And this is what he says, what happens in uh, verses 14, 14 to 20. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of the Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake she was dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels that were given to him. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her as my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning them, and they sent them away, his wife, and all that he had. So what happens is that God inflicts a plague upon Pharaoh, his whole harem, his whole house, everyone except for Sarai. And he calls him in and says, why didn't you tell me she was my wife? And what's the result? He sins Abraham away and gives him all kinds of gifts when he does so. So Abraham, he was already rich. He becomes even more rich. Here's what's so fascinating is that through Adam's, or excuse me, Abraham's lack of trust, God still blessed him. But I believe that Abraham and Sarah missed out on a great opportunity to exercise faith and experience the blessing of God. Yes, God worked it out. But can you imagine the story if Abraham would have gone down there and been like, wife, I know you're good looking. And I'm not going to tell anyone you're my sister. And when they ask me and they're going to take you, want to take you as a wife, I'm going to say, no, this is my wife. You can't have her. And I'm going to trust God. Remember that? It was awesome. And they're sitting around a campfire and they're telling this story. And, like, and I said to Pharaoh, no, you can't have her. And like all these things that could have happened but didn't. Isn't that so true of your life? You see, you freak out, right? And you scheme all these things. 
You forget God's past provision. We trust God with the big areas of our life, but when it comes to the small ones, we forget his faithfulness. And we sit there and we go, well, God worked out his plans in my life, but man, wouldn't it have been more enjoyable to trust him through it? Wouldn't it have been more enjoyable to not get nervous and get eaten up inside and think, man, this is really fun dwelling on this, and man, I feel terrible. No, you want to trust God. And this is what Abraham could have done, but God works through it anyway. We think about how God's provided for us, and that big bill comes in the mailbox. We're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? Oh, we're never going to be able to pay this thing off. And then you're fine, right? God takes care of you. You know what's amazing? Is even when Abram lacks faith, God doesn't leave. He doesn't say, Abraham, I'm done with you. I'm finding someone else that has better faith. Because when Abram was faithless, God remained faithful to him. Because really the promises that God was making to him weren't dependent upon Abram at all. They were dependent upon God and his faithfulness. And when you're sitting here thinking, man, I should be further along in this, I keep screwing up, just be reminded with the fact that God has not left. If you have believed in him through faith, he's not going anywhere. The promises that he's made to you are yes and amen. But you think, man, but okay, maybe that's true, but God could never use me. I mean, think about Abraham was such a great guy and he had such a great past. Well, that's actually not true. In fact, Joshua tells us that by Joshua tells us that um, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So here's Abraham and his father actually were worshipers of the moon, and maybe even participated in human sacrifice. God chose Abram not based because he lived an awesome life, but because he wanted to. And so maybe you're thinking, there's no way God can't use me. I'm messed up. I'm terrible. My past is a mess. My current life is a mess. Good. You're a perfect candidate to be used by God. Maybe you're thinking, I'm too old. There's no way that God could use me now at this stage of my life. Abraham was 75 by the time he really started being used by God. But why does God use broken and messed up people? Because that's all that there is. That's all he has to choose from. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not really all that messed up. Well, you're more messed up and broken than you could ever imagine. And God also uses broken and messed up people so that he gets the glory And that's what this whole thing is about. This story really isn't about Abraham, although he was a great man of faith. He's not the hero. This story is about God and what he is doing through Abraham. And that he's chosen him to start his story of redemption, to bring man back into a right relationship with God. He promises him, he says, Abraham, through your offspring, I am going to bless the world. What offspring is he talking about here? Yes, the nation of Israel that's still around, but he's talking about one Jewish man in particular, Jesus Christ, who would come from Abraham. 
And Isaiah tells us of Jesus, and he says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, Abraham saw the bottom of the cone. He saw the promises that God was offering to him, that through him, his offspring would bless the world. But he didn't know who that offspring was. He didn't know who it was going to be, but he believed God with all his heart. He had great faith in the promises of God. Do you know, we see the cone like this. It was a mystery to Abraham and all throughout the scripture until Matthew records this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we see this descendant of Abraham was Jesus Christ. And so we see that he came. Jesus was that one that was to be the savior of the world. Paul tells us that the gospel, the good news, was preached beforehand to Abraham. He said, foreseeing the Gentiles would come to faith, he preached the gospel beforehand in him, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. And we have the full knowledge of that gospel now that he was speaking of Jesus Christ. And that if we have faith like Abraham, that we trust in him and nothing else, we come into the same promises of Abraham that we will be blessed through faith. Here's a promise from Jesus. All who come to me, I will never cast out. Believe that promise today. Trust it and nothing else. And you'll experience salvation the way that Abraham did. And as we transition now to this communion table, we reflect upon this descendant of Abraham, the King of kings, the Lord and Lord, Jesus Christ who would come and to live a perfect life. And that perfect life qualifying him to be the sacrifice for our sins, a substitute for all humanity, so that we who could never be good enough to be right with God, God would substitute himself in our place through by believing in him, we can have redemption, we can have a new start, be bought back from slavery and have a relationship with Jesus and experience life abundantly, and eternal life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that if we've trusted in you, the same one that saved Abraham, that we can have blessing, namely the forgiveness of sins. We could be brought into a family. We can know God. Jesus, I pray that there's some here that are, don't know you, that they would come to know you today. God, I pray for the one that's not being obedient to you and claims to know you, would they obey you today? And we would trust the one when we still fall short that he is faithful and not us. In Jesus' name, amen.